You are listening to the San Antonio Zen Center Dharma Talks. The San Antonio Zen Center is supported solely by donation, so that everyone can participate in our offerings and programs, regardless of income. If you are able, please consider making a donation to SAZC through the donation button on our site, sanantoniozen.org, or by visiting paypal.me slash sanantoniozen. Thank you for your practice and enjoy the talk. Thank you to Colin for an uh, invitation to teach today, talk today. Um, I hear it was a thousand years ago that we met. <laughs> it hasn't felt quite that long. And I will say that um, I feel like Colin's family. Um, and uh, I, I like to joke uh, with him and say, well, if I was straight, he would be the person I would marry. <laughs> that kind of simpatico going on, not just from the years of practice together, Tassahara, but just, I don't know, you know, some people you meet and you just know that they're close to your heart and family, so that's Colin. Uh, so Deb's my partner, and we just came from Tampa to visit her father. Actually, since we were invited to come here and to Austin, um, she's been wanting to see her father, so we went there. And, um, you know, not long ago, he was sleeping in his bathtub because of Hurricane Irma. They thought you know, it was going to hit Tampa, but it actually hit Naples first, right? Um, and then around, and then there was Maria, and now there's Nate, we are talking with Cheryl. Cheryl was gracious enough to host us last night. And um, so we were talking about that on the way over. And so, and then with the shooting in Las Vegas, the, the world, <laughs> you know, is full of um, suffering. And... It brings up, at least I, I know for me, it brings up um, difficult feelings, complex feelings, a lot of pain, a lot of sadness, a lot of grief. So often, um, I know it comes up in my mind and people certainly ask me, well, what, what do we make of this, you know? How do we deal with it? How do we practice when there's so much suffering around us? And of course, our practice is to take an upright position, right? to sit and be open and be receptive to what is. That's our fundamental practice. And to be with things as they are, again and again and again. And in particular, in our tradition from Shinri Suzuki Roshi, um, I think we're often told that we just should let go of thoughts, let go of concepts about things. And just be with things as they are. And it sounds really inspirational. And for me, at least, it's difficult to do, especially when there's a lot of strong emotions um, and, and thoughts. And then with it, often really diseaseful um, sensation, uncomfortable um, agitation, wanting to move, wanting to figure out how we can help, planning, um, perhaps even anger. 
So I do have a, um, I do teach at City Center and San Francisco Zen Center uh, a lot, and then I also have a practice group. Um, we're in downtown San Francisco, now we're in Oakland, downtown, and um, it's called Access to Zen. And I'm, I started on the Vipassana tradition of Spirit Rock, and then um, I got bit by the Zen bug when I went to Tassajara. Um, I have complete trust and faith in Zen. And I find that um, Zen is difficult for a lot of people, especially for a lot of um, disenfranchised, um, underserved populations. Um, and I, I know for me, having gone to it, especially from um, American Vipassana, is that, you know, the black robes, the bowing, the chanting, it seems like a lot of rules. And for many of us, rules come with a lot of punishment or denial of services. And, and so brings up a lot. And so that's part of the difficulty. And, it, and it's difficult for all of us. Right? Um, and so I really try to focus on how to make practice accessible. That's what's called access to that. Um, and to me, um, the how to make it accessible is really the key. Um, I try to find useful and applicable ways um, to take practice into our everyday life, off the cushion, you would say. Um, and for a lot of the people that I interact with, it's a beautiful temple. I know it's, you guys just had your one-year anniversary. And I was sitting going, oh, Deb, you got to take some, she's a photographer, professional photographer. So I'm like, you just got to make sure to take some pictures. Someday we might get to this point. Um, and um, yet, you know, the people I interact with, besides even teaching courses at uh, City Center, come from outside. They're working. And so, um, and most of them won't really have temple practice and certainly not monastic practice. So how to, how to make it accessible is really what's important to me. Um, so today I wanted to talk about um, how the Buddha taught ways to practice that um, bring ease. You know, in the West we're so focused on meditation as the entry into practice. And for most of the world, um, it's on precepts or it's on how to interact um, and uh, in a way that is mutual. So gratitude and generosity are key things that he taught as, a, as practices that are easeful um, before you sit down to work on your mental and emotional um, aspects. And then another set of group of practices that the Buddha taught is called the Four Brahma Viharas. People heard of that? Uh, you guys probably, do you guys do the Metta Sutta? Sometimes. So, so metta, um, that's the Pali word, right? Pali is the early language of Buddhism, the Theravadan language. And then um, Maitri is the Sanskrit word. Like in San Francisco Zen Center, we, sorry, San Francisco, we have a Maitri hospice. It was started by um, um, Hartford Zen Center uh, in response to the AIDS crisis in the 80s. So, um, so metta is the first of the four Brahma Viharas. So the Brahma Viharas are, Brahma was a, is considered divine. It's like the upper caste of India. It's also considered um, easeful, divine, 
our best kind of uh, sense of things, celestial, supreme. And then vihara, the translation for it is dwelling or abiding um, or home. So um, you could say that the four Brahma Viharas are our best <coughs> home, the best dwelling place. And they are qualities of hearts and mind that are considered, if we were uh, our, in our best sense, these are qualities that we um, would reside in, that we would be with, right? So metta is the first, usually translated as loving kindness. I also like um, unconditional friendliness. Um, these days I also like goodwill. Uh, next is karuna, which is uh, compassion, the wish to alleviate suffering uh, for self or others. Third is mudita, which is um, sympathetic or empathetic joy. And then the last is upeka, which um, is equanimity. And, and the four Brahma Viharas are very specific that the equanimity comes from understanding cause and effect. Um, here's from um, the, the Shudhi Maga. It says, Metta embraces all, thing, all beings. Karuna embraces all those who suffer. Mudita embraces the prosperous. And Upeka embraces the good, the bad, the loved, the unloved, the pleasant, and the unpleasant. So, again, these are qualities that if you are upright and open and receptive and can sustain that, these things are easy to do. Now in the, we, these are talked about much more in the Theravada tradition, um, and they talk about it as a way to cultivate it. Um, in fact, um, Sharon Salzberg, have you guys heard of Sharon Salzberg? She's written books on Metta, right? Um, <clears throat> she talks about it as um, what we learn, what we develop, and what we cultivate. Um, I like to think of it more as these are qualities that we already have, but they're difficult to access, especially when we're distressed. That's when we tend to tighten up, um, and so it's hard to access. Like if someone bugs you, it's really can be hard to, you know, your neighbor dog next door is barking all night and you can't sleep. It's hard to go, oh, May you be filled with loving kindness without, you know, like trying to make it stop, kind of like more angstful, kind of get rid of it. Um, so, um, to me, they're a bit like muscles that we have to um, strengthen. Right? We all have muscles, but they work better when we've exercised them. Right? So it's easier to be able to lift heavy things if you have the strength. I will say that Shen Salzberg, why she talks about it as a way of cultivating, she says um, that when we develop and cultivate these qualities, then we have a sense of belonging to a larger picture of life. They are the natural expression of the heart when you feel connected. And I appreciate that. So today I'm going to talk um, mostly about metta, and because we're doing um, a half-day retreat on to access metta and really um, they are a group of um, actual practices which I'll talk, touch on uh, a little bit in, in a few minutes and then we'll talk a little bit more about them this afternoon though really this afternoon are 
the actual meditations that are taught of metta. So how is it that we basically, it's, you could say this afternoon's a workout, right? So we're, we're doing the metta gym um, this afternoon. It's some stations that you go through, and some reps. I just made that up, but that sounds pretty good. <laughs> okay. So, uh, again, metta um, is the Pali word, and it's de- derived from the word mita, which means a friend. So you can see loving kindness. So this is, when you have a friend, this is how you would feel. Metta is how I feel towards common, right? Um, and all of you, really. And, you know, that was the immediate thing with common. Um, so in the Kula Nadesa, Metta is defined as love means having a friendly nature and behaving with friendliness. Straightforward. And again, and from the Visuddhimagga, Metta is explained as love is characterized as promoting the welfare of others and its function is to focus on their welfare. It manifests as the removal of annoyance and its approximate cause is seeing the lovable nature of beings. It succeeds when it makes ill will subsides, and it fails when it gives rise to clinging attachment. So in the end here, these are, so with these qualities, there are things that are called far enemies and near enemies. So loving kindness, the far enemy of loving kindness is this ill will, right? That's imperial, it's like the opposite, you could say, is ill will. But there's something called the near enemy that you could think you're doing metta, but um, isn't, and that is uh, self-oriented um, affection, right? Uh, or as um, they put here, um, clinging attachment. Like you want to, like my example about the neighbor, you want to say loving kindness, but really the, the clinging attachment is that you want them to be different. Right? Like when someone bugs you, you shouldn't be going, may be filled with loving kindness, because you're really just trying to say, please don't bug me, please be nicer. Right? So that's a, there's an attachment to the outcome. So, so in all the four, four Brahma Baharas, there's a very definite sense that they need to be sincere, both of how you generate them, and then in Buddhism, it is really considered something that you can send out. I like to say it's like prayer. There's been tons of research on prayer that the effect of prayers is real, you know, and so it's the same thing in Buddhism. The effect of sending out loving kindness, sending out compassion um, has efficacy, you know, tangible or not, you can't really say, right? Now that Buddhism and science is huge, maybe in a few years they'll really have concrete evidence for us. Meanwhile, I certainly have felt its effect and feel like it's um, real. I would say that in my um, retreat last December with Gil Fronstow, um, it was right after the election results, so they talked on the um, three treasures, right? uh, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And every day, you know, it was him and uh, Andrea Fella. And every time Gil talked, I have to tell you, it was seven days, right? I was just bawling every time he talked. And I had all these openings about what is, what is Buddha and what is Dharma. And then it got to the Sangha part, and I was like, oh, this one's going to be hard. This one's going to be really hard. Um, and then there was this period in which 
I was going in from walking meditation. In that tradition, they, they're more vipassana, um, where they sit for 45 minutes and they walk for 45 minutes. I go there so that I can have lots of assignments and it's very restful. A lot of Zen Center people go there to get rest, right? <clears throat> no orioki, no running around these days, no doing practice discussion. We, we, it's our, like our retreat, right? Our self-retreat kind of way. So there was this whole thing where I came out of the bathroom and there were these two people um, doing walking meditation. And as, and as I left, there was an older white woman and a younger white guy. And as I walked out, all of a sudden it really hit me. Wow. If I take refuge in Sangha, it includes everybody. Like, it's not an abstract thing, it included those two people. It was very much like those two people really brought it out to me that it's everybody. No distinction, right? And it was so big that I literally, like, bend over and I was bawling and it was quivering. And so then I sat down on this bench by it and the sun was shining. It was cold. It was December, right? In the hills. And, um, Santa Cruz Hills, and I don't know if, we, we don't experience this so much, but in Vipassana, when there's a walking path or the area, and you can walk wherever you want, but often, you know, when people see people crying, they just turn around and walk the other way. You know, I think it's mostly to give people space. So I was sitting maybe this far from the path, and people mostly coming up and seeing me just bawling and then walking away, but then all of a sudden, and I had my eyes down still because I was still practicing. So I could just see the feet and like this far up on somebody. This man, I think it was a man, was walking by and he paused just as he went past me. And I, I swear to you, I just felt radiating metta coming at me like in waves. And I also just felt and then, of course, what, what did I do? I just bawled some more because it was just like, ah, you know, that's the thing about retreat. It opens you up, and it's that upright, receptive. You receive, and you let it in, right? as opposed to um, our defense of, should I take it, should I, am I going to be holding, do they really mean that? All that stuff that we do um, to defend ourselves, right? defend the self, in a way, you could say. I digress. Let me get back to the definition here. So in the Jakarta Tales, um, it says that having made metta one's guide, right? One should act having made metta one's guide. Now it's interesting, um, this is from Buddhism A to Z. I just found it on the website when I was just looking around. And um, they equated to the Christian word in Greek philosophy of agape, is that how you pronounce that? Which means charity, the highest love, especially between man and God. So, now the traditional phrases of metta um, are, they're just, they're, they're variation, and these are the ones that I've used for many years. So, may I be filled with loving kindness. May I be well. May I be peaceful and at ease and may I be happy. Right? Those are kind of the basic, their variations. Um, I will say that many years ago when I started Spirit Rock and I sat with a um, 
women of color group too. Um, I went on my first retreat and had a really hard time. And this one teacher, this Latina teacher, Margarita Lornes, she said, oh, based on your history, let's add another. So I, I grew up in Vietnam. I left um, in the Vietnam War. So she added, may have inner and outer safety, which is classically a compassion. And for, but for me, I've used it. So um, I've repeated these over and over. Um, and um, again, they're like mantras um, or koans. And the other thing about metta practice as a practice is that um, it um, is like a concentration practice. Because in re repetition, that's what mantras are, um, they also bring you focus right on it, right? So, now um, I'm gonna include these from Sharon Salzberg. So those were the five basic ones. And you tend to do them into categories. So the classic categories are, first you do it to the self. Um, in the West, we, we tend to have a hard time with the self. And the other thing I should say about meta practices is that um, they're really great because they're considered easeful. And so when you're doing it, um, you if like your foot starts to hurt, you can move because the energy needs to flow freely. I've been on, um, I led a retreat in Whitby Island of a Pasana retreat a few years ago now with um, Arena Weissman. And when we did Metta, they all lay down. And at first I was like, coming from Zen, I was like, what? <laughs> right? But it was supposed to be easeful so that you can lay down. A lot of people touch the hands or the heart because it's about where is it that you feel um, openness and where is it that it can flow freely. So um, so then you do it to yourself. And um, having having a hard time with yourself, you can visualize yourself in any way. So on a certain level, metta also, it's very unzen-like on a certain level, right? Because it doesn't have to be real fully. You can visualize yourself if, as some other aspect of yourself that can receive. Like if you're saying, may I be filled with loving kindness, and you're going, oh, but I'm grouchy. Then you can visualize yourself as like a baby, and then you can send it to yourself. Oh, may I be filled with loving kindness. I know some people have a hard time with the, even with that, so you can visualize yourself as an animal or even a flower. Um, and then the next category classically is called the benefactor. Um, these are like teachers, is a classic. People who you know the caring goes easily between you and them. So again, in the West, probably not our parents, but maybe like a grandparent. And I think the idea traditionally teachers, someone you know you have a lot of respect for. Them. Easy. I don't know about in the West if it's always easy teacher-student relationship. Um, and then the third category is neutral, either a lot of love or hate towards um, often strangers. Um, so this is very much about heading you towards all beings, right? So then the fourth category is the hardest for most of us. And again, classically, the languaging is the enemy. Right? These days, we say a challenging or difficult person. And again, if you do metta um, and it's your first time, you want to pick a very little 
challenging person because it has to be sincere. And then the last category is all beings. It seems like sometimes that's difficult for people because you might think, oh, I could send it except for one person or a group of people. So you can then visualize it as a sense of emanating awe everywhere. So, here's from Sharon Salzberg, and this is about metta. And this is metta for caretakers, so I thought I'd share that because I think that's useful for a lot of us. Having been, until this year, um, a social worker working with um, homeless seniors, um, I quit my job this year to teach it Dharma fully. So here's from Sharon. May I offer my care and presence without conditions, knowing they be met by gratitude, anger, or indifference. See, so it isn't for, to get a result, so that's no, no self-attachment, right? May I find the inner resources to truly be able to give. So again, so how can I find that muscle that in the giving is easeful? May I remain in peace and let go of expectation. Again, unconditional. May I offer love, knowing I can't control the course of life, suffering, or death. I care about your pain, yet cannot control it. These are almost compassion traits. I wish you happiness and peace, but cannot make your choices for you. May I see my limits compassionately, just as I view the limitations of others. That's an impeccable phrase. All right. I will say that I um, wanted to call this talk Love Practice. And then I fluttered a little bit and I said, was it love as practice? Or love is practice or just love practice? So I've just left it all here. Um, and. It, and it's because I think it's all those things, right? How do we how do we do love practice? Sometimes um, it's as if, right? Like that's the cultivation part, and then sometimes it is practice. And again, that's the like I I have to make some effort. I have to like pump some muscles into it, right? So it's all those things, and I think practice is that. It isn't just inspiration or, you know, prescription. It's how do we practice it, and then how do we, um, at time, make effort. So, and I wanted to really frame it in an everyday sense. Um, anyone here has read Bell Hooks All About Love? If you haven't, I highly recommend it. I read it a few years ago, and a few years ago, I, I would say that I had a Sangha member who approached me. She'd come pretty regularly, and she's like, oh, please teach about love. And I was like, I'm not a, I'm not a teacher. Me? Teach about love? And then I, you know, since my practice is to say hi, to say yes, so well, what, what in the um, teachings is would be about love? And that's how I got to the four or metas. And then I was reading Bell Hooks all about love. And so um, here's from her about how she um, defines love or aspects around defining love. Because I think love is really sticky in the West, or it certainly has been for me growing up in the West. 
She actually um, quotes Scott Peck in The Road Less Traveled. You all remember that book? My mother read it, and it was from 1978. And she says it echoes Eric Fromm. She says, love, from Scott Peck, love is the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. Now, doesn't that echo um, this phrase from the Vasudhimaga? Love is characterized as promoting the welfare of others, and it functions as a focus on their welfare. But this is very much, I appreciate it because um, nurturing one's own and another's spiritual growth. And then now she quotes uh, Scott Peck. Love is that love does. Love is an act of will, namely both an intention and an action. Will also implies choice. We do not have to love. We choose to love. And then she says, and this is the one I really appreciate, to begin by always thinking of love as an action rather than a feeling is one way in which anyone using the word in this manner automatically assumes accountability and responsibility. I'm going to say that again. To begin by always thinking of love as an action rather than a feeling is one way in which anyone using this word in this manner automatically assumes accountability and responsibility. And then she goes on to say, we're often taught we have no control over our feelings, yet most of us accept that we choose our actions, that intention and will inform what we do. We also accept that our actions have consequences. To think of actions shaping feelings is one way we rid ourselves of conventionally accepted assumptions, such as parents love their children, or that one simply falls in love without exercising will or choice. And I really appreciate how she defines this because um, to me, you know, the more and more I practice and teach, I've come to see how it is that we can view um, our lives in terms of empowerment. I think a lot of practices, to settle the self on the self is really understanding empowerment, self-empowerment. And empowerment is not about whether we have power or not. It isn't about having or not having. It's beyond this dualistic framing. It's very much about how, how it is that we can start to see our lives as being imbued with power, imbued with choice. From seeing ourselves in our lives as being caught in cages, sometimes feel like to me, a lot of times, the where practice is that big turning in practice is when you start to see that life doesn't happen to you. That's the cage thing, I think. I feel like life has happened to me. And at some point in practice, that cage becomes the container. 
you open up. So how is it that what seems like we have no choice and things are being done to us become that in the midst of that, we can make choices? And where is it that we can make choices? This is a key of practice, right? There is suffering without a doubt, right? And where in the midst of suffering do we have choice about how we respond and what actions we take for ourselves and for our community and our work, for sure. So, how is it that we can see where it is we don't have to or can alleviate suffering? This often takes reframing our perceptions and or our assumptions about things, situations, other people, and our own experience and our own sense of self. And at times, this reframing often takes um, being made to access practices which best helps us to learn, to build capacity to be with things as they are. Closer and closer, right? The practice instruction of the first noble truth, right? The first noble truth is there is suffering. And the practice instruction is to investigate that. So our practice, what we do in sitting still is so that it gives us a posture to be able to receive things closer and closer, more and more, and subtler and subtler. So when we get closer, when we view things more, we start to see where is it that we have choice. We have power. So we're very empowered. So in that vein, I would say that you can think of the four Brahma Viharas or Metta as, and this is from Daniel Goldman, emotional intelligence. Now, Daniel Goldman, again, a book called Emotional Intelligence in 95, has done lots of studies, and emotional intelligence is much more predictive of a person's success than their IQ. So emotional intelligence is defined by him as getting along with others, knowing how and when to act, not letting other, excuse me, not letting things bother you when possible, and success features, which are things such as persistence, determination, and deferred gratification. Doesn't that sound like practice? Especially the deferred gratification part. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But it does take determination and persistence too. Right? And really, we learn not to let things bother us when possible. We learn how to be open to things. We learn how to get along with others. So it sounds like practice to me. So I don't know about you, but I practice to know where are there places that I do have volition, choice on how the outcome can be more easeful and towards the ultimate goal of non-harming. So this is what is most important to me about how to make practice available. How can we suffer less and, in doing so, create conditions for less less suffering to others and the world? The Buddha taught us metta, 
along with the four Brahma Baharas, as easeful emotional and mental states which are available to us at all times. They're easeful because when we practice to better access and strengthen them, it's easier for us to be open, receptive, and therefore feel connected to each other. Remember the ultimate delusion is that we think that we're separate and that we don't affect each other. And when we're open and receptive and feel connected, our divine home, you could say. And in being thus, um, we can know more what's going on in our individual experiences. Stay connected to that and stay connected to others. Here's from Suzuki Roshi. This one's Zen Mind Beginners. The Zen school is based on our actual nature, on our true mind as expressed and realized in practice. Zen does not depend on a particular teaching, nor does it substitute teaching for practice. We practice Zazen to express our true nature, not to attain enlightenment. Bodhidharma's Buddhism is to be practiced to be enlightened. At first, this may be a kind of belief, but later it becomes something the student feels or already has. Metta, I think, certainly you have to cultivate it in the sense of being able to access it and have some trust and faith in it. And then with doing so, um, we really know that it's actual a truth and a fact. And that it's possible to access that for yourself and for others. I think sometimes there's that question, you know, in Zen about, you know, these kind of older practices, it feels like steps. Um, it feels like we're trying to get something. And I think um, really the caution in Zen is not um, that there shouldn't be some sense of progress or that you can't have some sense that things are going well and that things are improving. You know, we're not like, oh, like, oh, you have to suffer through the, some pictures might look that way. Really, um, it's about that non-gaming mind. So this is why I also appreciate metta, as really the essence of it is to be able to do it in a way that is unconditional, vast and wide, and covers everyone and includes yourself. No one is left out. Thank you. I didn't do so good with time. We have about five minutes. We have about five questions. I take challenges too, I like to say. So. <laughs>